0: What about the egg? Yeah, yeah, well, the egg, right? The egg, Well, a, yeah, there's a slight hiccup on the egg. How slight, plumpers? Yeah, well, seems the trucking company got the wrong zip on the crate and uh, it's wound up in Cleveland, Madagascar. That ink is the centerpiece of the entire stage show. If it's not here on time, I'm holding you responsible. Oh, baby, come on, it's under control. Don't worry about a fan. Uh... Trust me. Ah! This is not a non-spoiler review. It's something else. Poor Howard the Duck, I hate to pick on this one because it's just so darn easy. It's like Whiny Mary Jane or the Bat Credit Card or Bane. Yeah, all of them. Taking shots at Howard the Duck is like putting a working NES zapper right up to the screen. Hitting this duck is that easy, but one fateful night all those years ago, I vowed to review every superhero movie ever made, and this one sorta counts, so here we are. Figuring out what exactly went wrong here and how it became such an easy target... Uh, That's the real conundrum. I suppose I'll get this out of the way now. No, Howard the Duck isn't a conventional superhero, and neither is the Punisher, but since he exists in the Marvel universe with a bunch of superheroes, his films are usually lumped into that genre, and the same is true of Howard. This one is a little like The Mask, in its protagonist is dropped in superhero-ish situations, and a lot of the trappings, motifs, and formulaic elements of superhero movies are here, probably in an attempt to make adult material more accessible to a mainstream audience as I discussed when I compared it to Constantine that actually worked in the mask's favor and somehow just serves to make Howard the Duck a really awkward and uneven piece of work the superhero stuff is mostly shoved into this one like because it's based on a comic book it's a foregone conclusion it would have that predictable stop the destruction of the whole world slash save the damsel slash self-sacrifice ending even though it purports to be a more intimate but still absurd high concept story about a stranger in a strange land who can't go home and is trying to find a way to fit in. I'm not saying pitting Howard up against a dark overlord of the universe can't work, and I think most of the movie's ideas have some merit, if only they were blended together in a natural way. But I can't help but wonder, did it matter that this was a comic book first, or that Howard in the comics lives in a world that has superheroes in it? The book itself certainly wasn't a superhero book. Would most of this movie's audience even know who Howard the Duck was, if not for this movie? It strikes me as an attempt appealing to families with familiar action fare and making Howard a hero so he doesn't ultimately come off like just a disgruntled, sarcastic pervert. So we end up with a movie that's trying to be harmless, silly fun for all ages, and an edgy, risque cartoon for adults. Put all that together and what do you get? Uncomfortableness. Uncomfortable like dropping onto a chair with its springs hanging out from a portal in outer space. Like with Batman and Robin, I won't be one of the outliers trying to point out all of Howard the Duck's overlooked merits and how it's been unfairly ridiculed all these years. I always agree with public opinion but sometimes it's hard to argue with the consensus Howard the duck is bad it's bafflingly bad it's fascinatingly bad i don't know how to watch it without studying it as a cultural anomaly a thing that shouldn't exist but does but as with most things its badness is more complicated than just i mean look at it just look at it This is one of those movies that's so notorious, people seem expected to hate every aspect of it on principle. You get an expensive blockbuster like this, put out by a major studio like Universal with George Lucas' name behind it and at the height of his popularity, and then it's both a commercial and critical bomb, and it's a way more glaring failure than if it really was the B-movie it kinda feels like it is. Decades later, some of the youngins who weren't around to experience this head-scratcher upon initial release have stumbled upon it and just assumed it was a crappy B-movie, and perhaps didn't realize how state-of-the-art a lot of these effects were in 1986, and created by the top effects artists. The animatronics are as believable as they could have been for this period and on these time constraints. Remember, this was four years before Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, and was crazy enough to show Howard through much of the movie in broad daylight, where there was nothing to conceal any imperfections or mistakes, like all the strategic shadow work that was used in that movie. And yeah, I even think the Dark Overlord of the Universe, and all its Men in Black, Alien, Violator glory, looks as good as anyone could have done it in stop-motion and pre-digital effects. It's a lot like the Walkers in Empire Strikes Back, and it's interesting to look at the progression of some of those practical ILM effects for Star Wars to this movie. Although I will complain about the color correction. I'm really not sure why the Dark Overlord doesn't match the background more often. Maybe on his world, everything just looks that washed out. I mean, this ain't Turbo, a Power Rangers movie. At the very, very least, the title isn't misleading. Turbo barely counted as a movie, it didn't do much of what people come to Power Rangers things to see, and it wasn't remotely about driving fast cars. This is about a duck, and his name is Howard. No false advertising in the title. In fact, it feels the need to remind us that Howard is a duck at an average of every 22 seconds. Look at him. He's a talking duck in a world of humans, in live action. You're supposed to be laughing. That shit's hilarious. There's actually, I think, and some of you are gonna think I've lost my mind to a Dark Overlord when I say this, quite a bit of potential meat to this thing, but it's buried in feathers and it's like it's not even there. It watches like George Lucas hired a bunch of people to make this thing, they nodded and smiled, had no idea what to do with a foul-mouthed talking duck, and just relied on the novelty of that concept for 110 minutes. The thoughtful germs of ideas I'm seeing here might have been muddled because of the production nightmare of trying to make the suit work, the rush job it turned into in order to fill a release slot Universal had open for the very next year and studio interference that forced Willard Hayek, 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 excuse me, and his team to explain Howard's origins when they just wanted to use a duck from another world pops up an hour's go as a conceit, kind of like the time travel in a Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's court. Originally they even wanted to make this animated but they couldn't do that fast enough so George Lucas convinced them that they could do the duck suit in live action. Or maybe if you watch this movie too many times, you instantly transform into something else. Maybe all the potential I think I'm seeing is totally by accident. There's so much inconsistency in just basic characterization and story progression that none of it matters as anything more than padding to stretch a bunch of duck puns out to the longest hour and 50 minutes I have ever spent with a movie. If it really thinks all it needs to rely on to entertain its audience is the basic premise, why is it trying so hard to please every single kind of moviegoer? Co-writer and producer Gloria Katz seems bewildered as late as 2008 by the intense negative reaction to the movie Saying in a DVD featurette that people took it too seriously and didn't understand that it's meant to be absurd Why have any dramatic narrative at all then? Why not just cut the whole movie down to just the one-liners without any sort of context? Duck! And proud of it! That's a duck! That's a duck, man! Book'em, ducko! Hostility is a psychic boomerang. I am not Jack. It would make just as much sense and I would be just as emotionally invested. I'd also at least sort of know what kind of movie it's supposed to be. Here's some logic I don't understand. Let's throw everything short of the kitchen sink into this movie in an attempt to provide something for everyone but then insist that it was never intended for everyone in the first place. Katz doesn't understand the perfectly reasonable question I would have opened this review with if I hadn't seen that interview first. Who is this movie for? She responds to that exact question with, It's for anyone who finds it amusing, which is basically the same argument as comedy is subjective. You either find it funny or you don't. And that's certainly often true. But the problem is, comedy inside of a narrative requires a story context, even if it is my kind of humor. It presents itself, at least at first, like a crudely comedic character study. If I'm confused about what kind of movie I'm watching, I'm not focusing on the comedy, and often that confusion makes it hard to tell when I'm even supposed to be laughing. What's really perplexing to me is that Katz talks about the Howard the Duck comics as a tongue-in-cheek film noir throwback and speaks to that concept as the appeal for her and her husband, Hoyek to make this movie. But besides a gritty, stylized look, some of the time, that's not translated to screen at all. The scene with Howard and Beverly in bed together is one of the most uncomfortable and awkward and eyebrow raising inducing scenes I have ever seen. They each pretend like they want to get physical with the other, while making the audience think, in the moment, that they're serious. And I don't even know what to do with this. Is it supposed to be funny because the movie thinks it's been really pushing the envelope with the raunchy stuff and wants to fake us out into thinking it would really go that far, but then we're supposed to be relieved when it doesn't, like it's setting boundaries and parameters? Are Beverly and Howard really kidding, or does one of them lose their nerve and pretend they're kidding? Do they both lose their nerve, But then, isn't this sort of a love story? And isn't the final shot suggesting they get together in the end? Wait a minute, now that I'm looking at this again, oh god, Howard's head is coming off. No, never shoot that from behind. Okay, forget what I said earlier. That that looks pretty bad. So now I can't help but wonder, despite all the discipline I'm trying to muster not to think about this, if they really do have an intimate interspecies relationship after the credits roll. See, I don't understand these characters, or what they're thinking or feeling, because it changes on a dime to make a joke work. But then the jokes are often so strange and poorly communicated that they don't work on their own without that story context. So my whole experience ends up being a bunch of open mouth gapes and ellipses and head shaking. Something for everyone only works when all those elements create a cohesive whole and aren't separately present in random scenes. If this movie is just for whoever would find it amusing, why does it sometimes watch like corny kitty fair and sometimes like a lewd comedy? Why is the infamous topless duck in the bathtub and a duck condom in the same movie as the line bookum ducko? Yes, it's absurd, but inherently it's about a talking duck. Comedies need rules, just like action movies and musicals and horror films and the ballet. You don't have to fill in for a formula or toe a genre line. Decades later, Guardians of the Galaxy managed this. It's a logical blend of quirky comedy and drama. But you know what? So was Star Wars. This movie tries to use what passes for comedy in place of internal logic, while simultaneously giving us its rules and then immediately breaking them. There are moments in Howard the Duck that play like parody. But again, it's not consistently that, and I'm never totally sure it's intending to make fun of anything in particular. Is the airplane police car chase at the end meant to lampoon high-speed chase scenes? Is it supposed to be funny because it's so long and drawn out? Is the movie on the whole intended to parody the whole history of Lucasfilm up to this point? Or are there just a lot of references and homages to those movies because it's made by those same people? After all, Gloria Katz and Willard Heck both co-wrote American Graffiti with George Lucas, and the main title's theme sounds curiously like a tonal blend of John William's Star Wars and Indiana Jones scores. So to demonstrate how tonally all over the place this movie is, I'm gonna give you a quick interpretation-free plot synopsis. When you break down the story to its basic nuts and bolts, it sounds a lot less insane and all over the place than it really is. If it would just put the right things in focus and provide some much-needed exposition to explain character motivations, there is a story here. So, Howard T. Duck is minding his own business when he's suddenly picked up by a mysterious vortex and sucked into a nightmarish world of strange creatures who don't accept him. He struggles to carve a place for himself out in this world while constantly finding himself the subject of mocking and ridicule when, like Captain Janeway, all he wants is to get back home. He already feels disenfranchised because he was pressured by his family to give up show business and get a real job. But as luck would have it, the one human being who is kind and accepting to him after he saves her life from some thugs in an alley is another wannabe rock star named Beverly. She tries her best to help him get home, taking him to a clueless and obnoxious lab assistant at a museum, Phil, who's only interested in exploiting Howard for his own fame and fortune. Howard decides he can't even trust Beverly now and goes his own way, only to wind up in a menial labor job he hates. He realizes how much he's come to care for Beverly and tries to make up for walking out on her by strong-arming her sleazoid band manager into giving her and her bandmates the he owes them. Beverly and Howard start to cultivate what might be turning into a romance when Phil shows up with the very scientists who brought Howard to Earth. Now he has a way to get back to Duck World, but it's emotionally harder for him than it was before. But he still decides he wants that more than he wants to be with Beverly. But when the laser beam that brought Howard to Earth is turned on again, it brings down a terrible creature that possesses one of the scientists and works toward dominating the planet. Ultimately, Howard has to choose between leaving the Earth at the mercy of Ultra powerful aliens that will destroy humanity to get home or to sacrifice his way home for a race of people that has mostly been awful to him. Having seen the kinder and more altruistic side of humanity, not just through Beverly but now through Phil who, despite his idiocy, did save Howard's life during the final showdown, Howard chooses to sacrifice his way home and saves the world. He's rewarded by getting what he's been searching for, his own place in the world as the Cherry Bomb's manager, and he gets a taste of that life his parents always said was a pipe dream, his 15 minutes of fame on a stage playing in front of adoring fans. Howard T. Duck. I guess in a world of ducks, the last name Duck is like man. It ought to be spelled with two Ks. The movie I just described is likely not the one you think you watched. And that's because it isn't that's the basic skeleton of the story, but the way the film presents it, it's totally unbelievable, because these characters don't come alive, and their motivations watch is shallow and undeveloped. It sounds like Howard has a real character arc here, and that there's a simple story framework to naturally get comedy mileage out of, but it watches almost like it's going out of its way to sabotage it. This is why I can't get my head around this movie. I'm not saying that basic story is brilliant or anything, but how do you take that, put it on screen, and make something that makes my brain want to shut down faster than a first-generation Xbox 360 Red Rings there's something off from the start about how the movie approaches characterizing its protagonist. Ironically, this is actually the closest it gets to creating a consistent tone, one of confusion, and it also establishes the precedent for mediocre comedy getting in the way of the story. We're shown around Howard's apartment in Duck World, and as meticulously detailed as it is, it feels more like an opportunity to get cracking on those duck puns before it really tells us very much about Howard himself. We learn a few things. He has parents. He likes movies. he. Has has very adult vices, and judging by the postcard from one girl and the answering machine message from another, he likes to sleep around. I also know that Howard was once in a rock band but that's where the weirdness of this approach comes in. I've just looked at parody after parody of familiar movies and other pieces of Americana with punny duck titles. And then I learned that Howard's band is called Howard and the Heartbreakers. So naturally, I'm thinking Howard is a famous rock star, and he's this universe's Tom Petty. Why, oh why, would you use the name of a real popular band from this period as the name of a washed-out wannabes band? What I'm supposed to get from this scene is that Howard is living a life of mediocrity. He's directionless, maybe even pathetic. Instead, I'm thinking he's a big-shot womanizer who has several girls on the side, can't stop thinking about sex, and is channel surfing just because he has some downtime. But then it's not too far in the movie before Howard tells Beverly about his dashed hopes and dreams, and we get some backstory, and now I feel like we have quite a bit to work with. It's maybe a little convenient that the girl Howard saves from some jerks who conveniently picked that night to jump her happens to also dream about being a famous rock star, but I like that they have something in common and that she's trying to live the life he's already given up. I also like the idea that Howard would become her manager in order to get close to that life again, and maybe help her achieve what he never did did and always regret it. He does end up doing that, but not for any deeper reason beyond he's as qualified as anyone else is, he likes Beverly and he has nowhere else to go. That's also not at the forefront of the narrative. The stage seems set for an underdog story about misfits who take a chance and finally make it big, but instead it turns into something almost as shallow and paint by number as this underdog story but at least we didn't have to sit through some lame origin explanation for why howard smokes a cigar howard's motivation throughout is that he wants to go home to duck world but beyond people here are mean and i don't fit in i don't understand why why does beverly never remind him that as he told it to her there was nothing for him in duck world and he was miserable there sure he has family there but he doesn't seem to be in a rush to get back to his parents specifically and they're the main thing that was holding him back all those years on earth he can get a fresh start and do whatever he wants. Sure, he has to deal with various negative reactions to his appearance, and I think the idea is supposed to be that he tries to assimilate, as he says, but he just can't get people to accept him. But shouldn't he try doing what he loves? Especially because, on the rock stage, what would be perceived as a bizarre character gimmick would help him fit right in. And remember, he's trying to get work initially when he thinks that he's trapped and he'll never find a way back. When Howard first arrives, he gets a skewed, exaggerated first impression of America in 1986. And this is another idea I like that isn't really explored and ultimately makes no sense. At first, it watches like maybe a clever satire of the weirdness of then-contemporary street culture. Star Trek IV sort of did this too, portraying our world as it is, but through the familiar lens of the clean, utopian, more formal world of Star Trek, it looks weird and crude and, well... Illogical. And incidentally, that movie was commenting on the exact same culture in the exact same year. You use an alien as your eyes in for the audience, make him appear to be the most normal thing on screen, and make the street punks and the harebrained musicians look like aliens. But it's hard to tell if this was even the intention, and as the film chugs along, Harrod's mannerisms and expressions are as unnatural and cartoonish as everybody else's. Why does everyone grunt and hmm and mm hmm all over this movie? Is Howard doing that so he'll seem more expressive because the filmmakers aren't confident that we can read enough on his puppet face and the humans all do it so Howard doing it won't seem out of place? Anyway, the big problem with using Howard to explore and expose the absurdity inherent in the reality of our culture is that Howard comes from a parallel world where everything seems to have turned out just like on ours, except with duck motifs. He reacts in the alley like everything's totally foreign to him, but he seems to also be living in the 1980s, not to mention that he once tried to be part of the exact rock and roll world Beverly inhabits. He probably played the same sort of crappy dives and saw bar fights and everything. So after that initial shock of people being taller, featherless, and not having beaks, he should feel a little more at home than he does, and to my earlier point, that should make it easier for him to consider the advantages of staying beyond this manufactured relationship, he has with Beverly, that could easily be built on their common interests, but isn't. You know, I can't help but wonder what this movie would have been like, directed by Paul Verhoeven. And this all leads me to one of the most baffling lines in the entire movie. What is a pizza? Okay, so you have a world within America that evolved almost exactly like ours, down to the credit card companies are the same, and Star Wars and Indiana Jones came out at the same time they did here, and you have beer and cigars... But no pizza. What is inherently anti-duck about pizza? So if we go back to antiquity, as far as anyone can tell, the precursor to pizza is the focaccia, a flatbread made by the Romans, and then we added toppings to that later. Then the big game changer that took that basic idea and turned it into pizza was using tomato as a topping, which didn't happen until the 1800s in Naples. So basically, either the Roman ducks didn't come up with the precursor to pizza in the first place, or tomatoes never made it to Europe, so poor ducks people in Naples could start experimenting with it in their bread. Why in the name of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles would pizza be the one thing that didn't happen on both worlds? At least the one thing we're told about. And hey, I guess you wouldn't have the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles either, or at least if you did, it would be a pizza-less version. That also means Duck World never had and never will have Mr. Bill, Little Caesar, kinda interesting he's got a Roman motif after that Fuchacha thing, the Book It program, something else would have been Hydra in Back to the Future 2, no National Pizza Month in October, which was created in 1984, but I guess not in Duck World, and in the Duckworld World version of Spaceballs, there'd be no Pizza the Hut. The Duckworld World version of Spaceballs would be lampooning a movie called Foul Wars, so I guess it'd be called Foul Balls. Foul foul balls. It's like a triple entendre. Anyway, not to mention the thousands upon thousands of pizza restaurants we have in the United States alone. How would the ensuing butterfly effect, when you take pizza completely out of the equation, not give Duck World an entirely different cultural makeup? Phil is one of the most bizarre non-characters I have ever seen on screen. He feels like a total cartoon character in a world where people already don't act like real people. I can sort of see what it's going for. The duck is supposed Supposed to be the most down-to-earth thing in the movie. So you make a regular guy something closer to what you'd expect from a goofy cartoon duck, and you make him your comic relief character and let Howard be the straight man. He also has grand aspirations, just like Howard and Beverly, and could serve as the extreme example of having unrealistic goals and expectations. He's not living on planet Earth and has a childlike view of the world. He's the ultimate 1980s nerd. He believes in wild extraterrestrial theories and immediately jumps to the conclusion that if Howard is from another planet, he must have superpowers. I could see this guy working as a litmus test for Howard and Beverly. Compared to him, their dreams of stardom aren't so far-fetched. And maybe throughout the course of the movie they could help ground Phil a little, and he might mature and sober up as he gets a dose of reality. That's really what this whole movie should have been about, reality checks. Howard realizing that he's unhappy because he gave too much credence to people who told him he was being unrealistic, and he takes a chance when the seemingly impossible opens a new world up to him. Phil really is out to lunch and needs Howard, the most unlikely of mentors, to bring him down to Earth and help him develop some street smarts, and Beverly is on the way to becoming jaded like Howard, who helps her to live out her dreams, a second chance for him, and an opportunity not to make the same mistake he did for her, because he can guide her from experience. The duck shows up and enriches everyone's lives and rediscovers himself in the process. It might be clever and charming to tell that story in a world with something as absurd and unrealistic as an anthropomorphized duck. I'm not rewriting the movie, I don't think. When you look at the chemical makeup of these characters and the functions they're already serving in the story, the thing should write itself. Instead, Phil becomes the Jar Jar Binks of this movie. He's insufferable, he learns nothing, and he only suddenly becomes more courageous and Howard only comes to appreciate him because of the rules of the third act. Howard loathes this guy and almost turns his back on Beverly for introducing them. All Phil does until the airplane chase is try to exploit Howard for his own gain, but once Howard needs his help to go to the lab and foil the obligatory kidnapping plot, now he's Filzy. Filzy. Howard called him that once toward the beginning as an insult, but now out of nowhere it's like it's a term of endearment, and Howard never calls him anything else the rest of the movie. Filsy, Filzy, Filzy. Are they supposed to be sorta buddies now? Is this a Raphael-Casey Jones kind of relationship, where they're affectionately adversarial? They work together to try to get the plane to the lab, which makes steal a cop car seem like a way better idea once they get it started, and Phil keeps doing insane things that make no sense. He's still a total coward and even after everything they've been through together the first chance he gets he tries to tell the police that Howard was behind the whole thing and that he's a hostage. Why is Howard still acting like some sort of bonding has happened between them that I haven't seen? And then, the weirdest moment of all, Phil winds up under the plane, and Howard's drowning him because he's flying too low to the water. When Phil finally gets back in the plane, he's so angry, and this is a blink-you-miss-it sort of moment, but he goes in to strangle Howard. They're in a plane! He spent all this time trying to keep it in the air so they won't die, but Howard makes him mad, so he's going to physically attack him? What is this, an itchy and scratchy cartoon? I guess Phil's just a crazy person who doesn't have to learn anything or develop any sense of responsibility or loyalty. He's the comic relief. It's the same logic as the movie doesn't have to make sense because it's a comedy. But then why bother with the out-of-nowhere heroic moment at the end where Phil steps in and blocks the lightning so it doesn't kill Howard? I mean, the movie hasn't seemed to care if I like this person before... The Dark Overlord of the Universe comes way too late in the game and we're suddenly watching a different movie. A little like how Hancock takes this weird left turn right in the middle and is suddenly all about a mythology that wasn't seeded. It kind of makes this watch like a weird two-hour pilot for a TV show. It's a gritty street-level comedy drama and suddenly it's a superhero thing. Now, to be fair, Howard does save Beverly in an alley in superhero fashion, and with Phil, we're beat over the head with the fact that we're watching a comic book movie. Again, in the same movie with this, why do we have the line, it's a bird, it's a plane, it's a duck? Especially since a duck is, you know, a bird. Okay, it's 1986. There's a novelty to this whole concept that will wear off a lot when we start getting to things like Roger Rabbit and Ninja Turtles and the copious amounts of live action movies with CG dogs and other animals later on. But obviously, that didn't help audiences accept this in 1986. At some point, you've got to stop pitching the thing and start telling a story. Yes, we get it. He's a duck in a world where ducks are hunted and eaten, not invited to your apartment for casual sex. Okay, and what are the the odds every single TV in a storefront is broadcasting something about ducks. So anyway, the Dark Overlord takes over Jenning, who we just met and don't care about. He seems like a generic, good-natured scientist who typically messes around with something he doesn't understand and accidentally unleashes forces that want to cause a cosmic apocalypse. There's your standard, we weren't meant to tamper with the universe message here, but it's not social commentary so much as an excuse to get the duck to Earth and provide some generic problem for him to solve. And yeah, that's the line. We weren't meant to tamper with the universe. Hey, you... Quit poking the universe. The universe pokes back. The Dark Overlord starts to possess Jenning, and I have to say, Jeffrey Jones is acting his face off in these scenes, trying to create a real progression for the alien taking over. He doesn't make any more sense than anything else, but he's at least a lot of fun to watch. Howard and Beverly are completely dumbed down for a really long time and for no good reason, except maybe to stretch out the diner scene for as long as humanly possible. Why are they so dense that neither of them believes Jenning when he says he's being possessed by a creature from another planet? Howard's from another planet and he came down the same way although I have no idea why he landed two miles away and the Dark Overlord shows up right inside the lab except for the fun visual of Howard going from an armchair to another armchair. I also don't understand why the laser reaches out and specifically grabs Howard from his apartment. I wonder if the same thing happened with the Dark Overlords. They're just sitting around in their Barka loungers eating some Pringles telekinetically watching Dark Overlord gladiators or something and then all of a sudden they're being sucked into our world they're like ah cool a planet to take over sure hope they don't have megazords even after the overlord has explained his whole plot and everyone in the restaurant is trying to kill howard which might seem like an extreme reaction to a talking duck but i can't speak from experience i've never been to a cajun sushi place They both still think he's on their side. Beverly keeps begging him to help Howard out. The the guy is a dark overlord! But that's okay. The dark overlord himself is just as airheaded and oblivious. He says that he no longer requires human food, but that he gets irritated when the waitress takes his eggs. He needs Jennings' keycard to use the laser thingy and bring down the other dark overlords that he's stupid enough to pull it out while he's talking about his evil scheme, but then he just sits there and doesn't do anything to retrieve it until Beverly reminds him about the keycard, even though he's clearly looking at it when he loses it in the first place. What is going on? He also claims Jenning is dead and the transformation is complete, implying that he's fully supplanted Jenning's consciousness, kind of like Illyria in Angel Season 5. But then Jenning is back to normal as soon as the Overlord manifests as a huge worm thing, so I guess he was lying about that for some reason. And look at his hair now! How does that work? The Dark Overlord really is a Power Rangers villain. He can't decide if he wants to take over the world or destroy it, and both his plans and the rules of how all the alien stuff works keep changing scene to scene, and sometimes minute to minute. Evil aliens want to rule the Earth, he needs power to keep functioning, and he needs the laser to bring down more evil aliens. Why on the nexus of Somnus does this feel so darn complicated? So the first Dark Overlord comes down and possesses Jennings. First, he says it's a disguise, and suddenly it's that his kind can't exist on our planet without growing out of a human being, and that's why he kidnaps Beverly, so he'll have a vessel to use for one of them. But he says he's going to bring down several, so wouldn't he naturally need more people? And at the end, when he's using the laser, is he planning to use everyone in the lab as vessels for the Overlords, or have we forgotten they're not supposed to be able to just show up in full-blown monster form? Is that why the Overlord zaps Phil and Beverly and Glitter? phases them to keep them still until he can use them maybe we're not told and he wasn't expecting anyone there except for him and beverly so did he plan to just bring down one overlord or maybe two and use Jinning as the vessel for another one and maybe the idea is there's more now because there are more people here i i don't I, i i i i know i'm gonna get some flack for bringing this up But I can't help but notice a lot of similarities here to the Star Wars prequels, and that's really interesting, since this movie was spearheaded by George Lucas. Now, he didn't write or direct it, so a lot of this might be coincidence, but it suffers from some of the same mistakes Lucas made with Star Wars almost 15 years later. It's tonally inconsistent, it's confused about what audience it's for, it has difficulty defining its protagonists and giving them a natural character arc, it has really long action scenes that aren't progressing story or revealing anything about our characters, it has an obnoxious comic relief character the movie keeps telling us is funny, but who I just want to punch repeatedly in the face. It has a really awkward and poorly conceived love story, although, at least here, the chemistry is okay. <laughs> and this is with a duck! It's really interesting, by the way, that this was Leah Thompson's very next movie after Back to the Future, and that was a movie that expertly wove in its adult themes in a thoughtful way so that stuff didn't seem inappropriate in an otherwise, more or less, family-friendly sort of movie. And then this comes out, and I'm imagining Kids being mortified. Back to the Future, for me, watched on another level when I grew up. This movie made me feel uncomfortable when I was a kid, and it made me feel uncomfortable when I finally watched it again years later. Oh, and both this and Star Wars have bad guys with creepy silly voices and lightning powers. George Lucas and ILM sure like their lightning. If I only ever remember one thing about sci-fi movies in the 80s, it'll be that the electricity was all over the screen. One thing I have to give this movie is all the little lightning lessons and nuggets of wisdom you'll never get anywhere else. Like, it's impolite to stick your tongue in a cigarette lighter in front of other people. Never fly a hydrolite without taking lessons first. Always wear two earrings, no matter your gender. Eggs make ducks uncomfortable. If the person in the driver's seat is recoiling in searing agony and talking about feeling like there's someone else taking over inside of him. Pull over and change drivers. If you show up to an unemployment office looking outlandish, you're more likely to get a job. Lab assistant is another word for janitor. If you're a supervillain, never take out the key to your master plan and wave it around while you're explaining your master plan. Better yet, don't explain your master plan If you're a telekinetic supervillain, don't forget you can move things with your mind. The only way you can possibly be beaten by a three-foot-tall duck and a janitor is if you forget that you can move things with your mind. Finally, if you save the world, everything you've ever wanted will magically be handed to you seriously what is going on with this ending how long after defeating the dark overlord of the universe does this scene even take place all of a sudden the cherry bombs look like this really popular band playing in front of a ginormous crowd but the last time we saw them play it was in a dump How did they get so big overnight? Does everyone know about Howard and what he did to save the world? The whole thing was an isolated incident that took place behind closed doors in a laboratory. Even if Beverly or Phil or Jenning told people they helped Howard stop invading aliens from taking over the world, there's no reason anyone should believe them. And can you prove any of this? Oh, well, uh, we're all still here, aren't we? Yeah, so... uh... I guess we owe you one tip. Yeah. Thanks. But all of a sudden, Beverly and her band is successful, and Howard gets to be in the spotlight. But totally on accident! And for no good reason! Again, this is the one thing that's totally consistent throughout. The movie is bookended with awkward and perplexing logic. So Phil is Beverly's stage manager now, and he asks Howard to pull a chord during the Howard the Duck song. He accidentally pulls the wrong one, ostensibly, which conveniently leads to his being lifted into the air on a platform and dropped onto the stage during the bridge and a totally obviously planned moment for him to appear. There are accompanying pyrotechnics and everything. If Howard wasn't supposed to drop on stage, What was supposed to happen there? Why is there a little custom-sized duck guitar for him to play when he gets there? Just in case he ever bumblingly wound up on stage? And why, before he winds up on stage, are the lyrics of the song setting him up to be there? Here, before your very eyes, he's gonna be with you. He's gonna see some people tonight. I give you Howard the Duck. And then there he is, Howard the Duck, totally unplanned. Maybe the idea is that Phil and Beverly planned this in advance and didn't tell Howard about it. It's like a big surprise. And that could work. Again, being a rock star is his dream. It's what he's always wanted. But just like the should we, shouldn't we sex scene, I can't be sure what's happening. So what should be a charming and satisfying payoff turns into another confusing and overly complicated mess of a scene. I do like that the chords Howard played on Beverly's keyboard in her apartment become the foundation for the song. When I realized that, I couldn't believe it. It actually pays something off in a clever way. I got so used to this first draft moment-to-moment plot that I probably saw it three times before I even realized that. I know this was all a really long and roundabout way of saying, huh? What? But there's a good movie in here somewhere. It's lost in a sea of poorly communicated ideas and unfunny jokes, but it has flashes of inspiration. It's a really interesting failure, but a failure nonetheless. It doesn't speak to me in any sort of narrative language I'm familiar with. It's like watching a first semester German student pretending he's fluent for two hours. He seems to have some semblance of an idea of what he wants to communicate, but his grammar, vocabulary, and sentence structure are all inconsistent and often incomprehensible. And it switches gears more often than a driving student learning stick shift in a parking lot. How such a thing could possibly come together exactly as this did is one of those great mysteries of the cosmos. I'm going to give Howard the Duck a one out of four. And speaking of Star Wars, join me in two weeks for a look at The Empire Strikes Back on Rewind United.